So uh, today's scripture is Romans 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. Uh, You can follow along with the words on the screen. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to to have them out today. We're going to spend a lot of time digging into uh, what Paul is teaching us and and articulating about who we are and who we are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We therefore were buried with him through baptism into into death, in order that, just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, So that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace." This is God's word offered to us in its reading and in its hearing, so we give thanks to the Lord God Almighty. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Gracious God, in this space, in this time, you are with us. You are here. Speak to us now. Lord, remove me. Draw me low. Lord, be lifted high. Open our eyes that we would see, our ears that we would hear, our minds that would come to know and understand your word, our hearts that we would feel its power. Then I ask, oh God, that you would open our hands, that we would offer grace to the world. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to know that this text in and of itself is one of the most uh, profound and dense passages of Scripture we have. Uh, there, there is uh, an early Methodist preacher who spent an entire year just preaching Romans chapter 6. So we're going to be here for a while today. Uh, it's profound that we can draw near to God in such a way that is, in fact, using uncomfortable language. Let's be honest, if we, if we actually sat with that text uh, for, for any amount of time, we would feel uncomfortable because it uses uncomfortable language for us. Did you get that? It uses the word die, death, or dead 15 times in 14 verses. And that's not a word we like. We don't like the word death. In fact, we don't use it. When granny died, no one said granny died. We said she passed away. When Aunt Jan died, we didn't say Aunt Jan died. We said Aunt Jan went to be with the Lord. We don't like the word death. We don't use it. We avoid it like the plague. It's because we're scared of death. We are. We're scared of death. And it starts because we want to live forever. I mean, right? Like, like any time we see a statistic that shows that the average age of life increases uh, for us uh, as humans or for us in America, we're like, yeah, baby, I'm going to live longer. We want to live forever. And we're scared of death. It draws us back to that garden where Adam and Eve were with the Lord and had perfection. And what does the serpent say? To invite them into a different state of being? Do this so you could be like God. And there are, there are two differences between us and God. The first is what the serpent uses uh, uh, most profoundly in that. Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So then you could be your own God choosing what is good and what is evil. You could, you could know it. You could determine it. You could, you could have sway over it. We want to, to dictate what is right and what is wrong. That's a part of our human brokenness, our frailty. But the other thing, the other tree in the garden, if you would remember, is the, is the, is the tree of life. And the serpent could have just as easily turned to Adam and Eve and said, you want to be like God, here's life. And they would have taken that as well because that's something we desire. We desire eternal life. We want to live forever. That's why we idolize superheroes. We see uh, bulletproof Superman and say, yep, I want some of that. We want cures for every disease that would ail the earth. We want fountains of youth that would draw us back to those days where our knees don't creak and our backs don't ache and we can actually get 10 hours of sleep uninterrupted. How do the kids do it? I don't understand. So when Paul uses this language, die, 
dead or death 15 times in 14 verses. It's supposed to make us uncomfortable. Because we're supposed to grow in our awareness of of how profound his teaching is for us. That he is saying something is entirely dead. That that it no longer exists as it once did. There has been a, a full range transformation from what was to what is. This new life is different. The old has passed away. But, but, but that's not how we live life. We, we live as though we're drawing back, always reaching for the old. But that's not what the scripture teaches us here today. It says something has died so that we might have a new life. There is, in fact, also a use of this language of death to share with us, not just that there's a a broad sweeping transformation, but also that this transformation is likely to require pain. I assume most of you have borne witness to what death looks like and what that experience is. It can be. And we pray that it would be painless in our sleep as a movement from one to another, from life here on earth to life eternal. But that's not often or most commonly how it is. Death is painful. Death is a struggle. Death hurts. And it curses our body with all sorts of infirmities in the midst of that transition. And so when Paul uses this language of something dying, I I hope that we grasp that there is pain in the transformation. Because we are constantly at war in this move from what was to what is to come. And so what, what in fact is dying? What is the relationship that we're to draw in to dying? It is in fact sin. That sin is dying so that we might have a new and different life. But, but that is perplexing to us. We don't act like or behave like sin is dead for Christians. In fact, Paul opens up with a question, and I'll pose it to you, and I want you to, to just let it like honestly sit, not as rhetorical and not as though, like, like Miss Patricia called us all forward for a children's moment, and, and, and she asked a question that everybody's supposed to know the answer to. Uh, I want you to actually sit in this question that Paul asks in verse 2. He says, we are those who have died to sin. And here's the question, you ready? How can we live in sin any longer. Let that question sink in. How can I put yourself there? How can I live in sin any longer? As 
as your mind begins to turn on that question, you, you might, you might uh, think that, that the, uh, the, the knee-jerk reaction, that the kind of first thing that pops into your mind might in fact be true. You might say, well, it's easy. I've been living in sin my whole life. Sin was easy yesterday. It was easy this morning. It's going to be easy this afternoon. I know sin. I always have. And that might be our knee-jerk reaction to say, uh, how can I live in sin any longer? Well, I'm doing it easy because I'm not that gifted. But Paul is, is drawing us into to this conflict and, and he says, hold on, but, but you were dead to sin. If you're dead to sin, how can you live in sin any longer? Allow this complex question to rest with us. If you are actually dead to sin, how can you live in sin any longer? And what we then come to the conclusion as we spin further and further our wheels, we realize that this is actually an impossibility. It cannot happen. We cannot live, dwell, have our being in sin, be rooted in sin, have that as our source of, of a servanthood and masterhood. We cannot draw on that relationship in that way any longer. We cannot live in sin any longer, but it doesn't feel like that. There is a constant and pervasive tension that we feel between our new life in Christ and our old life in sin. And we are constantly reaching back for that sin, drawing back towards it, and seeing if we could pull it back in our lives. And we often fall, but how can we yet let go of the old and reach for that new life we have in Christ? We think that life is sin, but that is not truth. There's a verse here that I want you to, to underline if you still have your Bibles out. I want you to work to set it to memory and allow it to, uh, to invade every space of temptation that Satan lays upon you. In verse 11, it says, Count yourselves... Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And put it in your own terms. Uh, make it your own gospel witness. I am dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so when temptation comes our way, I'm dead to sin. But alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you do sin, when you fall short, when you fall to temptation, how do you then turn and rather than feel the overwhelming and oppressive weight of guilt that, that causes an exorbitant amount of weariness in your life, how can you rather than turn and say, no, I might have fallen to sin in that moment, but sin is dead to me. I am dead to sin and I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the kind of transformation that we are called to. And it's hard. It's hard because when we think of death, uh, we, we most commonly think of 
things that, that were once here and no longer are. In, in terms of grief, I want you to think about those, those things that you grieve over and the, the immediate response is going to be a loss of a loved one that we mourn. That was once here at Thanksgiving or at Christmas or at family visits, a treasured loved one in your life in some way, shape, or form. And then they died and they're no longer here with us on the earth. And so we grieve over that, but, but what else do we grieve over? How else can we, can we understand death and, and allow our experience of grief to inform that and maybe give us a perspective on this scripture? We also grieve over the loss of things or relationships or even sometimes locations that are still around, but they're now dead in the way they once were. Follow with me for a second. So, so have you ever moved? You, you lived somewhere for a long time. And, and, and yeah, so, so, so some of y'all in the room actually have just moved, and so you're laughing. Uh, some of you online have just moved. I, I know everybody's moving right now. What's up? Is it like the, uh, the, the financing rates are just that kind of good that everybody needs to, to move? Okay, anyway, so... Uh, so, you know, you move and you live somewhere for a while. Let's say you actually change towns. And whenever you move, it seems like all of your points of references are that old town, that old place. All of your longings are that old place. So much of your identity was, was born out of that old place. And whenever you go back to that old place, it feels like home. And the new place doesn't yet feel like home yet. And you're grieving that loss. The death of that relationship with that location where it once said that that was my place and these were my people, but no longer, no more. Another example would be whenever there's a death in the way in which a relationship operates. Right? I remember how I actually don't remember how long it took me for my understanding of my parents' marriage as husband and wife to actually die. They were divorced in 1993, and I spent most of my time through my teenage and even young adult years longing for my parents' relationship to be back together. It wasn't. That relationship was no longer the same. And yet I grieved over the fact that they were both still here and I was not able to experience that in that way any longer. It was there, but it was now entirely different, transformed. So I want you to put those ideas, this idea of sin into that. That sin can in fact be dead and still be around the world. Right? We see that sin is pervasive, that evil is ever-present in the world around us, that temptation seems to be constantly inflicting our minds and our hearts in the world that we live in. And so whenever we see that, we act as though or believe that it has some sort of mastery, some sort of power, or that it is in control, that we are yet still alive to that. But sin has died. 
It's still around trying to come back to life in us. And yet we as Christians are to say no more. I am dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's an entirely different way of operating in this world. There are a few tools that, the, that, that Paul gives us to understand this move that is taken. A, a couple of additional forms of language in chapter 6. In verse 6 and 7, it uses uh, language of slavery and freedom. I want you to, to turn there if you have your Bible still out. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Hold on, hear this. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because, in verse 7, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. You see that? So, so sin is, is, is still around, but it just is no longer our master. It, we are no longer slaves to it, to it. It no longer has control over us. We now operate out of the life we have in Christ Jesus because as he died, we received that death, and as he lived, we receive that life. But, but maybe there's a, a, another way of articulating this, of connecting it to a metaphor that we can understand that, that Paul uses as well. It's in both chapter uh, verse 12 and verse 14 of chapter 6. Not using slave or free language, but in verse 12 it states like this, Therefore let, uh, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not let it reign. R-E-I-G-N. Reign. Have authority. Power. Do not give it the ability to offer direction that you would, in fact, it says, obey. It doesn't get to speak and you then act because it does not reign over you any longer. And to connect to that, verse 14 ties it in like this. It says, for sin shall, not, shall no longer be your master, your Lord, your, your king. Sin no longer has that authority in your life. So, so we hear the question, how can we live in sin any longer? It's impossible. It's not impossible to sin once you're alive in Christ, but it is impossible to allow sin to reign over you once you're alive in Christ. We have a, an entire transformation. So why do we just continue to draw back to that old life and desire that old way of being and, and, and think that the sin that once was has any place or power or authority in our life today. We're feeble and we're weak and I believe we're not convinced 
that we have this new life. This new life that has transformation power. This new life that comes from crucifixion and resurrection. Because it says uh, the old self, this old way of being was crucified with Jesus. And sin no longer can rule. It was done away with. But just as Christ was raised from the dead, so now we have been raised to this new life. Things have been altered for us. We have a new way of being. I want you to think about that first moment after you've moved and you've spent weeks, months, or maybe even years longing for what was that old home experience. But then something happens. You go on a vacation. You go on a trip. And when you come back, you drive down your street and you pull in your driveway and you walk in your house. And you don't know. You, 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 couldn't, you couldn't plan it. You, you couldn't line it out. You, you couldn't expect it. But something happens. You, you know what I'm talking about. Something happens. You now walk into that home and you feel home. That, 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 that home that I once had is no more. This home that I now have is. And this is where my identity is found. That I am alive in Christ. My new dwelling place. C.S. Lewis put, puts it like this. In mere Christianity, if you're looking for a great book on apologetics and, uh, and, and, and Christian formation. C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity, recommend it. He, he talks about uh, what it's like when we invite Jesus into our lives and, and we uh, look for, seek out, expect this transformation to take place. That, that there would be uh, death to sin and there would be life in Jesus. And what is this transformation he, uh, we have? He said it's like when we invite Jesus in for a remodel of our house. He says that, that, that if Jesus just was to, to start like sweeping up and cleaning up, we'd be like, yeah, that needed to happen. I hadn't done baseboards in a while. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I, have, I haven't gotten that little Swiffer thing that, that, that cleans the blinds up. You know, the blinds are always dirty. But, but if Jesus just started cleaning up the blinds and the baseboards, we'd be good. Maybe even shampoo the carpets because I have kids, Right? And so, so invite Jesus in, and if Jesus is just, just do, doing a little cleanup, we expect it. But then if Jesus was to, to start repairing uh, the roof or, or fixing our leaky pipes, we'd be okay with that too. Because we're clear on the fact that I got a leak in my roof and I got a leak in my pipes. It was on my honeydew list, and my wife's been on to me for that. And so if I invite Jesus in and Jesus starts fixing the things that I'm aware need to be fixing, it's okay. But then here's where C.S. Lewis points out the, 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 the pain, the transformation, the, the fact that something entirely dies so that something entirely new might live. Here's what he says. He says, but Jesus doesn't stop with cleaning things up or fixing those leaky pipes or fixing that leaky roof. Jesus starts ripping out the kitchen. And y'all know how that disrupts your life. Some of y'all just got queasy thinking about Jesus coming in and ripping up your kitchen. Jesus starts changing how things are organized and ordered in your kitchen. 
The master bedroom, nope, we're going to gut it. We're going to start over. But that's my, that's my tub. That's where I find my peace. Not any longer because Jesus is going to rip it up and find you a new one. He's actually going to tear down a wall and add an addition. He's actually going to add a floor to your house. You know how much pain it takes for Jesus to add a floor to your house? He's going to tear the whole roof off and add an entire new floor and then put a new roof on top of that. And some of you might start thinking, I didn't sign up for this. I thought you were just going to work around the edges, Jesus. I wasn't really expecting you to actually transform things, change things from the way I knew they were to an entirely new thing. But Jesus isn't just coming to fix the edges. Jesus is coming to create a dwelling place in you. And if Jesus is coming to dwell in you, you are going to be entirely different. You can no longer be alive to sin and dead to Christ if Christ is going to dwell in you. You will be dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus our Lord when he comes to dwell in you. And it will cause pain and it will be challenging but there will be transformation and the life you have will be unlike the life you ever knew. It will be full of joy. It will be full of peace. It will be full of confidence. And there will be hope there because you know the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Who does not leave us to die but brings us into eternity with him. That we have abundant life here today and eternal life forever and ever in him. We, brothers and sisters, must change the framework we have when we consider our relationship to sin. It no longer has mastery over you. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and he dwells in your life, you are made alive. In him. And sin no longer has a hold of your heart. Let that be the source that we reach to so that we can say with confidence when we are asked, How can we live in sin any longer? I can't. It's impossible because I'm alive. In Jesus Christ, my Lord. Would you pray with me, brothers and sisters? Almighty God, what a transformation this calls us to. A transformation in a way of thinking. A transformation in a way of operating. A transformation in the way of having our being in the world. Let us let go of that sin that, that had mastery over us that we were slaves to. And let us be free to live holy lives seeking only after you, Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, help us to to wade through this season we are in, to, to examine our hearts and our lives, to consider the sin that has revealed itself to us in this season, sin of idolatry, sin of complacency, 
sin of of hatred and of racism. Sin of division. Lord, we repent of that sin. We repent of that sin and and call on your name and invite you to dwell in our hearts and lives. Lord, we are ready. We call upon you. We invite you. Jesus, come. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus, you are that Savior. I give you lordship over my life. I submit to you. I submit to holiness. I no longer submit to sin. Lord, I love you. We love you. We pray this in unison as the people of God. In the powerful and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.